This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss our body's need for a variety of antioxidants with nutraceutical formulator, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn about the risk factors for an eating disorder with researcher, Dr. Linda Bui, PhD. We'll discover the work of medical scribes with medical scribe, Ricky Robsing. And lastly, we'll learn about immunotherapy and vaccines for targeted cancer treatments with researcher, Dr. Li Hua Tai. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. The number of people living with obesity has nearly tripled since 1975, resulting in a worldwide epidemic. While lifestyle factors like diet and exercise play a role in the development and progression of obesity, scientists have come to understand that obesity is also associated with intrinsic metabolic abnormalities. Now, researchers from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine have shed new light on how obesity affects our mitochondria, the all-important energy-producing structures of our cells. In a study published on January 29th in Nature Metabolism, the researchers found that when mice were fed a high-fat diet, mitochondria within their cells broke apart into smaller mitochondria with reduced capacity for burning fat. Further, they discovered that this process is controlled by a single gene— By deleting this gene from the mice, they were able to protect them from excess weight gain, even when they ate the same high-fat diet as other mice. In addition to discovering this metabolic effect, they also discovered that it is driven by the activity of a single molecule called RAIA. The new research suggested that when this molecule is overactive, it interferes with normal functioning of mitochondria, triggering the metabolic issues associated with obesity. Question. What's the best way to make sure you're getting the most up-to-date and accurate health and wellness information? Answer. The Tonic Newsletter, of course. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, Gordon. How are you doing? Great, Jamie. Thanks for having, having me back again on your show. 
So today we're almost uh, we're going to be hearing uh, almost like your dissertation here, right? We're we're talking about antioxidants, which is so completely in your wheelhouse. So let's start at the very beginning. What is the role of antioxidants? Well, let me back up a little bit before we can go down that road. I I, um, I did my postdoctoral work on on um, free radicals and antioxidants, right? right? And one of the things about that, the thing that struck me the most about free radicals and antioxidants, a lot of people are under the the misconception that all free radicals are all, are the same, all antioxidants are the same, and they do all the same thing. They don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Some antioxidants will react with some free radicals, and some will not react with other free radicals. Right. Um, I, first, I'd like to define what a free radical is. What makes free radicals very dangerous is that they're very short-lived, right? But they're very active chemical species, right? Or chemical. Um, I, I I won't call them a compound. I call them a chemical species just because. Just because they're not very stable, okay, and because they're not very stable, they will react with almost any type of um, compounds that are floating around. Stable compounds, right? And and now I know I, I'm just uh, made a, a, an error there by saying to you that the uh, antioxidants will not react with every single free radical. When I by that I when I meant was that. Not every single antioxidant will stop the, every single free radical, mm-hmm. right? So, but the, what makes the free radicals dangerous is that when they react with a stable compound, they generate one free radical will generate two free radicals, and then two free radicals will generate another two free radicals. So it makes them four. So, pretty well, what you're seeing is that it's a, it will be an explosive reaction. It'll keep on expanding until it meets up with a, a particular antioxidant. And when it meets up with that particular antioxidant, the antioxidant basically stops that free radical. It makes them stable, right? So what what happens is it stops that reaction from happening, right? Mm-hmm. Now, where, where this is particularly um, dangerous, or you can see, um, if you look at a, a cell, a cell has a lot of, they have something called a cell wall. The cell wall, if you think about it, stops the outside from going into the inside of the cell and stops the inside of the cell going to the outside, right? Mm-hmm. So your cell your cell will be alive. What free radicals can do, and this is just an example of what they can do. They can s- attack the, the fatty acids in the cell wall. And if you if you think about how what I was talking about, the reaction, uh, one free radical becomes two, two becomes four, etc. If you think about it, it destroys the cohesion of the cell wall and all of a sudden you get a hole in the cell wall now if the hole is small the cell does have the mechanism to fix that hole but if the hole is big it destroys the cell the cell dies now this is at the level of one cell so if you think about your skin and we're just talking about the skin cells Mm -hmm. right if you have if you have a lot of free radicals in there all of a sudden you can get destruction of a lot of the skin Right, so you can get, um, <clears throat> you know, that's a basic reaction will destroy the skin, right? Mm-hmm. So the the thing about the free radicals and the antioxidants is that you you unfortunately you need free radicals in in your system because this is how a lot of your um, immune system works too, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens is that if you have a virus coming in. 
right? The the white blood cells come come along, chug along, and then they meet the the virus, and then they release uh, a compound which then can become a free radical. And the free radical then attacks the virus and destroys the virus, or attacks the bacteria and destroys the bacteria. Now, this is just one of the mechanisms, right? But uh, it seems that a lot of the different mechanisms of the immune system, th this is the final common denominator, the free radicals destroying the, the, um, the bacteria or the viruses, right? So you need to have a balance, because if you have too much um, antioxidants, Right, you destroy the free radical effect. Now, the, the fortunate thing is because you can't have, for example, we know vitamin C is a free radical, is an antioxidant. Yes. Okay? However, if you just take vitamin C alone and no other antioxidant, you're not you're not going to be protective of all the parts of the body. And the reason for this is vitamin C, whilst it's stored in many different places, it's not stored in every single um, organ or cellular structure, right? Mm -hmm. So for antioxidants to be active, they have to be at the right place at the right time. So for example, if you have um, something like vitamin C, it doesn't sit in the cell wall of the cell, right? So if you think of, let me, let me make a better picture for you. Mm -hmm. If you think of the cell wall as a... Um, as a cell, sorry, as a box, the cell wall would be the cardboard, right? Okay. And for the for the for the antioxidant to work, the antioxidant has to be within the body of the cardboard, right? So vitamin C we know does not sit in the cardboard. Unfortunately, we have other things that will sit in the cardboard. Things like vitamin E will sit in the cardboard, right? But however, vitamin E um, may not be, you can't have the whole cell wall be made of vitamin E, right? So you have to have different type of compounds sitting in the cardboard. So you have lumpy, bumpy cardboard where you have insertions of vitamin E, you have insertions of polyphenols, things like green tea extract, et cetera, et cetera, right? Okay. So now that's just at the level of the cell wall. But once you go in, inside the cell, Right, you have a whole bunch of other things that can be attacked by free radicals, which can destroy the cell from the inside out. Right, so you can see why why you need different type of antioxidants because the different type of antioxidants have to be inside the cell, in the cell wall. Right, but yes. then you also have the other problem is that different antioxidants seem to 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 hang out at different organ systems. Example, lutein. You know, you ever always hear lutein for the eyes, lutein for the eyes, right? Mm -hmm. But lutein is not necessarily any better than vitamin C. Or you hear lycopene, lycopene for the reproductive organs, right? Like the testes, etc. Lycopene, again, is not necessarily better than lutein. The reason they have these things is because lycopene tends to, to concentrate in the reproductive system. Lutein tends to concentrate in the macular tissue of the eye, right? Okay. And because of that, it's at the right place at the right time if it gets attacked, right? By by free radicals, right? Uh, this is why you have to take a wide variety of free of um, antioxidants. So not one single antioxidant will do the, the full job, right? Just like you can't take vitamin C alone. Because vitamin C does not sit in the cell wall, right? 
Okay. Uh, because the cell wall, the, the chemistry of the cell wall is the cell wall is um, basically made up of fat, all right? And vitamin C does not dissolve in fat, so it won't stay in the fat. Uh, vitamin E, unfortunately, vitamin E will sit in the, in the cell wall and because it's fat soluble. But again, you have to look at how many molecules of vitamin E can I sit in the cell wall versus how many free radicals are coming in. All right. So I guess what I'm trying to say, the take home message on this is that you take a wide variety of, of um, antioxidants. Right. That, this is why when, when people are eating, um, they always say eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables because one of the major food sources of antioxidants is um, vegetables and fruits that have color. So you, you think blueberries, right? Mm -hmm. You think um, um, kale, ketchup, carrots. For want of a better way, yeah. because ketchup, um, the lycopenes have been um, have been have come out of the 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 cells of, of the tomato, right? Right. Because that's you have to look at the other side too. How easy is it to get the, the antioxidants from your food sources? Well, let, let's let's take let, let's pause there for a second. So yeah. it, it, if that's true, if if we're getting the antioxidants uh, from food sources, can we get them solely from food sources? Like it, it, assuming that we ate a variety of fruits and vegetables, is that enough for the, for the average it, human being or is there something? Or, for the or average human being, if you're young, right? Like a young person can, can probably eat their weight and fruit and, and be, and, and get away with it. However, we also know that you gotta have a balanced diet. Fruits, whilst they're great for antioxidants, don't give you a lot of protein. Right. Right. Yep. It might give you a lot of carbs, but it doesn't give you protein. And whether you like it or not, you need protein to live on. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that, so you you can get a lot of fruits and um, a lot of the antioxidants in fruits and vegetables. The the problem with it is that we don't know how much we need um, to have a call a, a, to be balanced, right? Okay. And it's it's like the, the old vitamin story, all right? People will will sit down there and say, um, you know, I can get all my vitamin C from an orange. That is probably true if you were young, etc. But we do know that most people are taking like more than a thousand milligrams of vitamin C in a pill. And you gotta you gotta squeeze a lot of orange juice to get the same amount of vitamin C. Sure. Plus and then you have the other added problem is that if you take the orange juice, you get too much sugar. So if you're diabetic on the one hand and you can't be drinking a lot of orange juice, right? Right. And then you know, how much oranges can you consume? per day. So that's why the path of least resistance is to get it in a in a capsule form or pill form, right? So let's explore uh, that. If, if that's true, if we're talking about, you know, people who perhaps aren't digesting or, or who can't sort of eat that balanced diet because they're older. So what would you tell them? Would you tell them to take a multivitamin or would you tell them to take a variety of different, like, how would you approach it? What I would tell them to do yeah. Eat a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, right? And there's another reason why you want to do rich in fruits and vegetables, because uh, fruits and vegetables also have a lot of fiber, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we know about fiber is that fiber binds to toxins, right? And, and why that's interesting is that 
there's a lot of these environmental toxins. Now, if you don't eat a lot of fiber, what happens is that you'll probably have a bowel movement, say, once every two days. And I'm just throwing that out there as, as an example, okay? I, I know people will say, but I have a bowel movement once every two, once every twice a day type of thing. And that's fine for people, right? But not everybody has that. And the problem is if you have a bowel movement, say, once every two days or so, the, the environmental toxins that are in your body stays in the in digestive tract, and the longer it stays in the digestive tract, a, a much greater percentage of it is absorbed. Mm -hmm. So if you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, what happens is basically you, you've, you empty your bowels a lot more frequently. And when you empty your bowels a lot more frequently, it, in, it delays or it inhibits the absorptions of environmental toxins. So that's one of the advantages of fruits and vegetables. But also on the fruits and vegetable side, right, you get a lot of antioxidants. But again, how much is enough, right? Because you have to remember, it has to distribute throughout the body. Right. right? So even though you absorb it through through the body, through the GI tract as food, it takes a sweet time to get down to the cellular level, right? So whereas if you take a, 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 a pill, Right, a pill it's it's easier, right? You get a higher dose in in a in a little pill because you have to remember the fruits and vegetables when you take it, you your body still has to digest out the active ingredients or the ingredients that you want to get into the body. So, you know, in the in the fruits and vegetables, you might be getting say nanogram quantities at a time, whereas in a pill you can get milligram quantities at a time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a factor of of, of a million sometimes. Makes total sense. Thank you so right. much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me on board again, Jamie. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the risk factors for eating disorders on The Tonic. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Linda Boy obtained her PhD degree in clinical psychology at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where she conducted various experimental studies on the role of serotonin in mood and cognition in individuals with depression. She then did her postdoctoral training in the Department of Psychiatry of McGill University, where she was trained in PET imaging and human genetics. 
After establishing her research laboratory, she led various studies as principal investigator on the impact of early adversity on brain development and risk for uh, psychopathology, in particular, depression and eating disorders, and on the role of serotonin in brain development. Dr. Bui is a full professor at McGill University and head of research and academic development of the eating disorders continuum of the Douglas Mental Health University Institute. Her current research particularly focuses on the biopsychosocial pathways of eating disorders. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. So what is an eating disorder? Well, actually, eating disorders are uh, serious conditions, and in fact, there are different types of eating disorders. Uh, But the most well-known ones are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binging disorders, but there are also a few others. So all of these three, they're slightly different from each other, but they also have something in common, which is some sort of preoccupation with weight, control of weight, and body image. Um, The most common one, anorexia, the most well-known one, uh, anorexia nervosa, um, means that someone restricts a lot, uh, sometimes but not always, is doing a lot of exercise, and it leads to a weight that is lower than what would help healthy for this person. And in spite of this low weight, the person is also afraid of gaining weight. So if you think about another type of eating disorder, uh, bulimia nervosa, uh, a person with bulimia nervosa has binge eating episodes. So that means the person eats large quantities of food in a short period of time, um, does not have the control about it. And this is then followed um, by some sort of effort to compensate for that. And this can be, for example, a misuse of laxatives or vomiting, which is, by the way, uh, these are not good ways to, uh, to keep your weight under control. No, they aren't. No, absolutely. So these are not like good, you know, healthy, healthy behaviors. So uh, unlike anorexia nervosa, someone with binge eating disorder, they generally have a normal weight or a bit higher weight, which also makes it harder to detect for the outside. So someone with bulimia nervosa often feels a lot of shame around the binges and purchase. So it can also take a long time before the person um, would actually seek help. Yeah, I mean, we have a family member who has anorexia and has actually okay. sur- sur- survived many, many years despite mm-hmm. uh, having the condition. And, you know, you, you can see her, you know, she walks throughout the city and she is extremely physically active, but looks, mm-hmm. you know, she's very petite. And yeah, it sounds like also like a lot of like fear as well of gaining weight. Yeah. And, and then, you know, with bulimia, there's also like the physicality of it, right? Like constantly mm-hmm. vomiting can damage your esophagus and it can ruin your teeth. And Absolutely. You- there are many physical uh, like, you know, side effects actually from it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You have also another disorder called binging disorder, which is in many ways similar to bulimia nervosa. So binges, the person you know, feels no, no control about the binges, but that person do not do any laxatives or uh, any other types of compensatory uh, behaviors. The interesting thing as well is that with anorexia uh, nervosa and bulimia nervosa, it tends to occur more often in females than in males, although males could also get uh, these type of eating disorders. But for binging disorder, the prevalence is roughly the same for males and females. Hmm. So I I understand recently uh, we had eating disorder week. What was that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, actually, it's happening uh, like well, this week at the time we do the interview. So this is a national initiative in which eating disorder organizations across Canada really try to raise awareness about eating disorders uh, through a week-long campaign, and really with the idea to educate and inform the public. 
Because most people, they have heard about eating disorders, but there's actually there's still a lot of myths and stereotypes that people have around uh, eating disorders. Uh, for example, that eating disorders would only happen in young women. Now, we know now that eating disorders can affect anyone from any walk of life. Also, and often a uh, misunderstanding is that you have to be thin to have an eating disorder. Well, in fact, people with any body type or weight could get an eating disorder. Or that families are to blame for, um, you know, a mother that's too much involved or not much involved at all. And in fact, family often could be very supportive for someone who has an eating disorder. And we also know now that eating disorders, they're very complex disorders that are caused by a multitude, by, in, by various factors, biological, social, and psychological, and they all work together that's, that contributes to an eating disorder. So well, families should not be blamed for Let's explore some of those factors, starting first with the biological risk factors. Yeah, so as I said, like eating disorders are really uh, multidimensional. So if we think about biological factors, we could think about like genes, uh, for example. So uh, eating disorders are uh, heritable, that we, we do know that from, for example, twin studies. Um, but these genes, let's say, when you have, let's say, like the, you know, for the lack of a better word, wrong genes, it doesn't mean that you, you are determined to get an eating disorders. It's really the combination as well with other factors, like environmental factors. So um, it could be already factors in the environment that could happen already before birth, in the first years of life, later in life. So basically, when we think about genes, um, recent research have identified certain genes that might play a role in the development of eating disorders. Most of the work actually has been done in um, research, has been done in uh, people with anorexia nervosa. And what these studies have found is that people are more at risk for anorexia nervosa. Uh, they had, there's some sort of genetic, uh, some genes involved in mental health, in metabolism, in immune function. But again, these genes are not fixed. They actually need to be turned on or turned off by environmental factors. So it's, so, so it's epigenetic and a predisposition. Exactly, a, exactly. So some exciting research has been, been going on and still, even though we still have to you know, learn a lot from, we still need to know more about how these processes specifically work. Um, but the research kind of so far has shown, including the research that we're doing in our own clinic, is that epigenetic factors, so how environment would impact basically the, the activity of the genes, uh, play a role in eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa. So you really need to have all these different factors that, that could cause an eating disorder, and it's not only the environment. Sometimes it happens that, let's say, family members sometimes wonder, like, from what I've done wrong, like, why do I have my child an eating disorder? Um, and again, it's really like the, the combination of factors, like a genetic contribution combined with environmental triggers that could kind of, like, turn on or turn off the gene. And one big trigger that could kind of like one factor that could kind of like pull the trigger is often dieting um, that could then gradually lead to development of an eating disorder. Well, you know, I, I presume that somebody that suffers, like, there's a psychological impact, right? Like, almost like a body dysmorphia. Like, somebody, mm -hmm. somebody yeah. who has an eating disorder kind of sees themselves in a certain way, which may or may not reflect reality, and sort of mm -hmm. spurs them on to their behavior. Is, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Like also when someone starts to um, lose weight and then gradually actually the person gets more and more obsessed. It could also be caused that like if, you know, if let's say the person gets gradually malnourished and it also could further like increase obsessions around shape and weight. W would you consider that to be sort of a psychological factor? 
Um, it's really the combination of different factors that all work uh, together. So if, if you're malnourished and also maybe there are certain brain chemicals sure. that may also not be you know, fully produced as well, like when, when someone is like starving um, uh, themselves. So it's really a combination of like biological, uh, psychological and social factors. What are some of the social factors that would impact then? Is that, is that like sort of being isolated or... or alone or what would, what would uh, impact? It could be anything. Like, I mean, social factors, it could be certain environmental experiences like uh, uh, trauma, uh, being bullied uh, at school. The pandemic is also a good example. Sure. Um, you know, social, cultural factors, feeling the pressure to be thin. But again, they really work together with the biological factors that determines if someone would get an eating disorder or not. So you touched upon the pandemic. What are your findings? Like what happened during the pandemic for people who have eating disorders? So eating, so COVID had a big impact on eating disorders. Uh, for sure, it, it led to changes in routine, loss of structure, um, influence of social media and social isolation and so on. But if we look at the research, um, many uh, research teams across the world have seen that the number of people who got an eating disorder for the first time really increased during the first phase of the pandemic. And especially teenagers, uh, particularly girls uh, and in anorexia nervosa. There was also among, especially among children and teenagers, an increase in emergency visits and in hospital rates, hospitalization rates. Um, so it really had a big impact. And there's also some work uh, showing that people who already had an eating disorder when the pandemic started, their eating disorder uh, got worse. Uh, well, most of these data, what we know about uh, the changes, the increase in eating disorders come from the early phase of the pandemic. It's really important to uh, continue monitoring them. And given what, what happens like over the, over the years, to really also think about ways how we can improve access to care for anyone who needed uh, to recover from an eating disorder. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Linda Bui. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about medical scribes on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. At Air & Wellness, empowering women through holistic health is more than just a mission. It's their passion. Leaning on the latest scientific research, they've crafted a range of all-natural, high-grade supplements to support women in their unique health journeys. Whether it's perimenopause, hormonal imbalances, sleep issues, or weight loss, each product purchase comes with a comprehensive program complete with educational materials, nutritional information, and strategies for long-term health and wellness. Made for women by women, Air & Wellness supplements are available online at airandwellness.com or at select health stores across Canada. Start your transformation with Air & Wellness today and experience the change that they bring to lives. Visit airandwellness.com. That's A-E-R-Y-O-N wellness.com because your journey to wellness begins here. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. 
Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. In the heart of Texas Health Harris Methodist, one of the busiest emergency centers in USA, Ricky Robsing serves as the chief scribe at ScribeNest, bringing her extensive experience of over 9,000 clinical hours to a key leadership role. In her current position, she oversees and manages all facets of scribe-related operations across three emergency department facilities. With a dedicated emphasis on training and development, guides new hires through the intricacies of medical documentation, epic EHR software, medical terminology, and basic anatomy. Welcome to the show, Ricky. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. So for those who don't know, what is a medical scribe? Um, so a medical scribe is essentially a personal assistant to any healthcare provider. Could be a PA, physician, um, NP, you name it. Um, and we work alongside them throughout a shift, and we are responsible for all the documentation. So, does that is that like filling in charts, or is that keeping track of what happens during a surgery? What does that mean? So for so for us, we work in an emergency room. So our shifts are nine hours long. So once a physician start their shift, we start the shift with them. And once they leave, we leave. So we get to see and hear everything that they do. So as a scribe, our responsibility is to create this medical document that reflects a patient's stay in the ER under the care of the physician you're working with. So that includes physical exams, what brought them into the ER, past medical histories, current medications. And it's our job to document throughout the ED stay up until the point where the patient either gets discharged, admitted, placed in observation. So by the time the patient leaves or gets admitted, there is this whole medical document that mirrors to stay in the ER Um, so that's, that's basically one part of what a scribe does, right? Does that, Um, does that form part of the medical record for somebody who goes to a hospital? Yes, it is. So that is basically if you went to the hospital and then in a week you went to see your primary care physician and they look up your hospital stay while you're in the ER, that is a document they're looking at what we're creating. So uh, are you an expert at shorthand is there, or is there a special program that you work with? So we work with Epic uh, at, at our facility. So that's all electronic healthcare records. Okay. I'm not familiar with it, right? Like, so I just, I, yep. just, I just host a talk show. I mean, it's probably second nature to you. So, oh, so- yeah, absolutely. No, I tell all my trainees, no dumb questions here. Okay. Every question's a good question. Okay. Well, I guess that means I just asked you a dumb question, but that's okay. Not uh, at all. <laughs> so, so you're working with a program and, and I guess you have to keep up with the doctor when they're doing the examination in terms of like all the testing that's being done, like, like yes. heart, heart rate yes, that's and, correct. And, 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 you know, blood pressure, et cetera, temperature, all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So basically they, throughout the shift, they're basically thinking out loud and I'm responsible for documenting that. Um, however, I say I do a good job if I can anticipate my doctor's next move and next step. Um, therefore, I'm more efficient. I can help them out that way. Um, so, yes, and we, we're there as a second pairs of eyes and ears. 
So we we do a lot of documentation, right? But that's not the only part of the job. We're there to assist them and help them in every way that we can. So that's listening for overhead calls or, hey, there's a new patient to see in room XYZ. Um, it could be, oh, hey, patient in this room mentioned briefly that they're not fond of their PCP. Do you want to place a new PCP referral? So it's our job to, we're there to listen and to see everything and not so much execute on the medical care, but more so reflect the care that they get under our physician's care. So you're almost like a personal assistant to the attending physician then, I would think. Absolutely. So what training is involved in becoming a scribe? Is there courses that you take or is it kind of like you learn on the job? So with Scribe Nest, we have a typing test. So in terms of speed and accuracy before you get hired. And then we have some basic training, such as medical terminology, spelling of drugs and whatnot. And then we have something called floor training. So once we have a new scribe, they have dedicated floor training where they're assigned to another scribe, such as me. I do a lot of floor training with our new hires. So they work with me for let's say 12 shifts and then they become more and more independent throughout the training. So, you know, day one, basically observing, I'm showing them the ins and outs of Epic, what to look for, what to listen for, what's important to document. And then, you know, throughout the floor training, they get more and more independent. And then throughout the end, we have something called a mock solo for trainees where they, I'm just there to observe. I don't do anything. I don't say anything to make sure that the quality of documentation is what we're expecting it to be, that they're comfortable being on the floor by themselves with the physicians and vice versa, that the physicians feel comfortable with the quality of documentation that they get from our scribes. Why are, why are medical scribes so important to the process? Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons, but the main reason is that traditionally physicians are trained to focus solely on direct patient contact and patient care. But in the reality of 2024, that role of a healthcare provider, it extends way beyond their clinical duties. And it often takes away time from patient care and, you know, those meaningful face-to-face interactions So by using scribes, you know, patients feel more comfortable. Physicians, they have more time to spend with their patients. And what drew them to medicine in the first place, right? They're they're trained to treat medical conditions and direct patient care, not necessarily hours and hours of documentation. So by using a scribe, we allow them to spend more time with the patient instead of having to worry about was this documented oh i have to remember this you know like if i go to the emergency room i would i would prefer to be met by a face of a smiling doctor eye contact you know feel like i have his or her full attention and not be met by a computer screen or feel like they're busy typing away instead of actually listening to what i'm saying right yeah so it's a really important doctor-patient relationship um, and then just efficiency that, you know, that they don't have to go out and chart for hours and end 
once they exit a patient room, it's done. I did my work. They can see a new patient. Decreases patient wait time. Nobody likes to wait when they're in pain. Yep, that's true. So, so who is it who who is likely to be a scribe? Is it is it people trying to get into med school? So I think that's really that's really really cool because it's really anyone who is interested in the healthcare field, right? Especially working in the ER, we get to see everything, a little sprinkle of everything. So we have pre-nursing, pre-PA, pre-medical school, pre or pre-med. Um, we have pre-physical therapy, dental students. Um, so really anyone who's interested in healthcare, because you get to see a lot of things in the ER. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, are you concerned at all that medical scribes are going to re- be replaced by AI? Is that a thing? <laughs> no, I'm not concerned that they will be replaced. I think AI can eventually help out the scribes and do some of the work that they do. Um, but, you know, being a scribe, maybe a third, two thirds, that's the documentation part. But then there's the fun part where you get to interact with your physician, see them provide direct patient care. You help them, you know, pull up previous records or, you know, like, let's say someone, a patient came in with EMS and they had no prior knowledge of this patient. All they got was what brought them in. That leaves my physician with right about nothing to work with besides what's in front of them. Mm-hmm. But while they're working on the patient, I know, hey, I'm going to go in and look at their prior records. I can pull up a prior admission. Hey, Dr. So-and-so, they have a past medical history of this and this, and this is their most up-to-date medication list. All right, now we got something to work with. AI can't replace the symbiotic relationship that goes on between a physician and scribe. That makes sense. All right, we got time for one last question, and that is a war story. I always love a good war story. So, so what's the, what's an interesting thing that happened to you, good or bad, that's happened to you in the ER? Oh, so many things. Um, I'll focus on the good. I think one of the most meaningful days in the ER for me was when a patient gave birth. That is not something we see often. We see a lot of really, really sick people. We get to see a lot of people get admitted. We don't see the outcome of the patients that we see. And it was just a really wholesome moment of, it was in one of our big trauma rooms and I've witnessed countless patients injured, sick, you know, not make it. And it was just a really beautiful moment to get to see that whole circle of life. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Ricky Robson. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to discuss immunotherapy in terms of cancer treatment on the tonic. Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. 
They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Lee Hua Tai, PhD, is Director of Cancer Research at the Centre de Recherche du Chou and an Associate Professor at the Department of Immunology and Cellular Biology at the Université de Sherbrooke. I'm sure I've, my French, French pronunciation is totally wrong. She obtained her doctorate in molecular immunology from McGill University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in cancer immunology at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. She heads a translational research lab where she and her team focus on better understanding metastatic cancer and developing new immunotherapies. This might be a record for me struggling to get through somebody's intro. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So we're here to talk about uh, immunotherapy and vaccines in the context of cancer, which is sort of a a very narrow focus, but also a really super interesting one, because you don't necessarily think of vaccines as being something that can treat cancer. So I'm actually really interested in this. Um, For those who don't know, what is immunotherapy? So immunotherapy is really taking our, our immune system Um, And the cells that make up our immune system, so our T cells, our B cells, and everything else that makes up our immune system, and really working on it and training it to recognize and kill cancer cells that come from within, right? Mm -hmm. We think about it, um, like you said, we don't tend to think about the immune system and and vaccines uh, in terms of fighting off cancer. We tend to think more about it in terms of infectious diseases against bacteria, against viruses, etc. But in fact... Cancer cells come from within, mutations within our own cells. Um, and so our, our immune system can recognize it, but we have to train it in a way so that it won't attack itself, so that we don't get autoimmunity and, and harm to our, our, our healthy cells, but to train it so that it can recognize and kill off those cancer cells. So is this a new field, immunotherapy in the treatment of cancer, or is this... Not at all. Uh, so uh, the field of, of, of cancer immunology and of developing in, in immunotherapy is not that new. I mean, the idea of getting the immune system to recognize cancer cells has existed, I would say, since the late 1800s, early 1900s. Although back then, we didn't have the the biological tools that we have now we don't have that understanding of dna and how to manipulate dna and and technology related to to bio to biomedical research we didn't have those tools so back then you know we if i go back to dr um coley who is the you know the godfather of of, of cancer immunology he was a bone surgeon uh, at memorial sloan kettering in the u.s he, he observed that in his bone cancer patients, some of them, if they also happened to catch uh, the flu virus or were sick with something infectious, for some of them, lo and behold, their cancers regressed. Um, he didn't know how to explain it. He knew that somehow they, they were, their system was inflamed, um, their immune system was turned on. And in some cases, if they didn't die of their infection, their cancers would go away. So there was a lot of sort of anecdotal and observational studies. And I would say really it's been 
the late 1900s, the early 2000s, with explosion of, of biomedical research, CRISPR technology, understanding of DNA, how to manipulate it, sequencing, molecular biology, et cetera, that's really led us to this point where we can really try to understand the immune system and, again, how to train it, how to work with it, how to manipulate it to recognize and fight off uh, our cancers. So is, is the ultimate goal to create a treatment for cancer, or is this sort of a collateral approach where you are helping the body perhaps use other methods to fight the cancer? So, so I think a little bit of both, right? Okay. So right now, the vaccines, we um, other than... Uh, vaccines against the human papillomavirus that's associated with human papillomavirus-associated cancers, so cervical cancers and other cancers of the reproductive tract, those that are caused by a virus, there are cancer vaccines that exist, right? Our school-aged children, before they become sexually active, they're getting the HPV vaccine to prevent the development of primary cancers of the cervix and other HPV-associated cancers. However, this is not true of other cancers um, because we don't know what causes them. We don't know what is if um, an etiological viral agent causes breast cancer. We don't we don't know that. Hmm. Um, and in many other solid and, and liquid cancers, blood cancers, we don't know what causes it. So because we don't know what causes it, we can't develop a, a vaccine to train our immune system to get rid of it. Um, so what vaccines do exist in the cancer space is therapeutic vaccines, right? Once yeah. we understand what a breast cancer is, and this is some of the work that I do in my lab, we can cut out the cancer, which is standard of care for most solid tumors, curative surgery. If we can cut out the cancer, if, if the patient is resectable, if we can cut it out, try to understand it, understand it on a molecular genetic level, then we can devise, formulate vaccines, put it back in the patient so that we can reduce and prevent metastatic disease, right? Because breast cancers, most women don't die of primary breast cancers because because screening is so great and because surgery is great and, and our existing therapies like chemotherapy, radiation, it's great. Most of the time it works. But for those cases where the cancer is not resectable or in cases where it's too aggressive, um, there is there is room for novel immunotherapies, vaccines to try to stall and prevent metastatic disease. So let's, you know, uh, what am I? I'm, I'm just like a talk show host, but I, I want to understand sort of the mechanism of how immunotherapy works with the cancer. So I, I'm going to ask you a hard question, and that is, can you explain how, how it works on a cellular level? Like, like wh what are we trying to do, practically okay. speaking? So the most uh, popular existing immunotherapy that I think most people are, are aware of, and I say most people, I think that so the non non scientists yeah. in popular in popular knowledge, it's uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So we know of the of these checkpoint inhibitors or immune checkpoint blockades, and these are antibodies that will block a negative pathway in immune cells so that now they can work properly. And again, I'll give you a, a lay analogy. Sure. So I kind of think about a T cell in your body, an immune cell. Think about a car, an automobile, right? The automobile has a gas pedal and a brake. If we're still talking about gas vehicles, yeah. there's a gas, there's a brake. Um, and so the T cell has that too. They contain mechanisms for the T cells to be turned on versus for the T cells to be turned off. Um, so if we can somehow rip out the brakes from this car, if we can use um, an antibody, a small molecule drug to, to block that negative signaling and remove the brakes, then the vehicle stays on, the gas is on, it'll keep running. And so we think so this is the basis of checkpoint immune um, inhibitors, where basically the T cells are left on 
and then they will um, be supercharged to recognize and attack cancers. Unfortunately, and, and this works well some of the time, mm-hmm. assuming your cancer is a parking lot with a lot of cars in it, right? Yeah. If you have a lot of cars in it, you can take the car uh, to, to rip out the brakes. However, a lot of solid cancers don't have cars in it. It's like an empty parking lot. And if you don't have the vehicle in it, what are you ripping the brakes out of? How do you use a molecule to target something that's absent? Um, and so we've sort of, the field has moved beyond checkpoint inhibitors trying to understand why, why do some patients not respond? Or if they initially respond, why do they stop responding? And obviously developing other new immunotherapies. There's much more to the immune system than just ripping out the brakes of a negative pathway, right? The the car has so many other aspects of it. There are mirrors, there's the gas. Can we supercharge the gas? Can we put more cars in the system, right? So there's different ways we can put more T-cells in without just taking the brakes off the the ones that are there. There's many, many different ways to modulate the immune system um, for the benefit of treating cancer. Is there any concern that once you supercharge these T cells that they go and they attack other aspects of the body that you don't want them to? Exactly. So a lot of the secondary effects of um, immune checkpoint inhibitors is autoimmunity, right? Yeah. So a lot of these patients who are on checkpoint inhibitors will develop colitis, inflammation of their intestines, diarrhea, digestional problems. Um, sometimes it could be linked to other, um, you know, uh, uh, rashes in the skin um, and other uh, inflammatory diseases that that is very similar to autoimmunity because the immune system is very very strong and potent um, and so I think there there's got to be a precise way it cannot be a hammer approach in immunotherapy it has to be we have to have a good understanding and then go in with precision immunotherapy to make sure we do we don't do further harm to the patient. So I understand your current research uh, involves a particularly challenging cancer that that that. Uh, doesn't necessarily respond to chemotherapy and is quite aggressive. So so what are you trying to do to battle that particular type of cancer? So the particular cancer that we're, that we're looking at in my lab is called triple negative breast cancer. So it's a subtype of breast cancer. And again, breast cancer is not one disease. It's right. not a mono, it's not a, um, a monolithic disease. It's heterogeneous. There are many, many different subtypes of breast cancer. Some um, respond better to, to standard of care treatments. Some don't respond. Triple negative by its name, tells you that it's negative for three different markers that are typically present on those other type of breast cancers where we do have targeted therapies. These three proteins are hormone receptors, progesterone, estrogen, and also this other receptor called HER2, the human epidermal growth factor receptor. And so for the other subtypes where these proteins are present, we can block hormones. We can give them targeted therapies against HER2 to to eliminate those types of breast cancers. Unfortunately, for triple negative breast cancer, um, we don't know what it is. The name is a catch-all terms for those of, of can- breast cancers that don't fit into this category. So it's a heterogeneous disease. Typically happens in younger women in their 40s, racialized uh, communities as well. Um, and uh, there are no, if these women fail surgery, if they fail their neoadjuvant chemo, so chemo give before surgery, there aren't many targeted options available for these women. Um, checkpoint inhibitors sometimes work. Um, and other therapies sometimes work, depending on the genetic makeup of, of these patients. But um, but we're trying to develop a vaccine against triple negative breast cancer. We're trying to understand on a genetic level, on a protein level, how to identify triple negative breast cancer and how to turn on the immune system so that these women don't develop metastatic disease, so that they don't die of bone metastasis or lung metastasis. 
Fantastic. Well, that sounds like super interesting and important work. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Linda Bui, Ricky Robsing, and Dr. Lee Hua Tai. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For more timely, up-to-date, and accurate health and wellness information, subscribe to The Tonic Newsletter. Now distributed once a week, the Tonic Newsletter, with content curated personally by me, will keep you in the loop. There's contests, prizes, insider scoops, and so much more. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie@thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.